right now we have so much human judgment and that's what we value. We want everybody to be treated with respect. And if we didn't need people to be treated with respect, we can replace it all with chat GPT and other robots. So human judgment is still going to be critical, at least for a little while yet. Maybe I can pay off my mortgage before it ends. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and welcome to episode 100 of the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. We've talked about artificial intelligence and especially ChatGPT and uh, generative AI quite a bit over the last few months. But the reality is that some form of algorithm has been incorporated into a lot of HR automated processes from applicant tracking systems to benefits enrollment over the last several years. And now everyone seems to be jumping on the AI bandwagon. And while some are predicting that AI is going to wipe out HR or maybe eliminate the whole human race, I still argue that AI is nothing more than a tool. You're not going to lose your job to AI. You're going to lose your job to someone using AI. But like any tool, AI can be intentionally or unintentionally misused. And joining me today to discuss the emerging legal, ethical, and practical issues surrounding AI in the workplace is Kate Bischoff. Now, I rarely read guests' bios directly, but Kate's was too good to rewrite. Kate Bischoff is an overly enthusiastic, sarcastic, and opinionated management side employment attorney and human resources professional. She works closely with management, HR folk, and technology companies to improve organizations through training, policy, and investigation work, in addition to everyday advice and counseling. And I'll add that she's also an excellent LinkedIn follow. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Kate. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. I'm happy to be here. So artificial intelligence has had a a busy six months and it's been in the news and everybody's debating. Is it, you know, is it good? Is it bad? Um, And, you know, I'm generally very pro technology if it's used deliberately and with, you know, full understanding of what you're really doing. But what are you seeing as the biggest impacts of AI in the HR practice so far? A little chicken little-ish, like the sky is falling a bit. Um, And maybe also just, ooh, it's shiny toy, let's go use it. And so there's, I'm somewhere in the middle between those two. Like you, I think it's a tool. But I do not think most organizations are capable of using it effectively as a tool right now. And my goal is to get organizations to that point to use it knowledgeably as a tool, as opposed to, it's great, let's use it, everybody's got it, it's going to differentiate ourselves and bleeding into all the hype that sales folks are giving it. Yeah, it it does have the tendency to sound a lot like crypto did maybe four or five years ago. (laughs) And if anybody Mm -hmm. wants to buy some Bitcoin, uh, I've got some to sell, but I'm just still (laughs) holding on to it. But, I'm and so I've, sorry, Mike. And I've, I'm paying for a Chat GPT four uh, subscription. So you know, but I've seen that it's it's useful. 
but it's it's not going to it's not certainly not uh, GPT is not going to wipe out any HR roles anytime soon. Oh, I don't think so either. My concern is particularly in the selection use of AI, whether it's who to hire, who to promote, all those kinds of things, where it is, uh, they give you an indication, whether it's the five-star rating or whatever. And then I can see humans defaulting to just relying upon the rating that the AI is giving them, as opposed to thinking critically and making deliberate decisions. Because the decision-making is always going to be with the employer. If you're using a tool you know, the EEOC is not going to go after the tool. The EEOC is going to go after the employer who made the decision. So this idea that we can just rely upon it because it's easier, I can see us falling into it because we're humans and many of us are lazy. Yeah. And well, and we've seen that with other algorithms too, right? With, you know, uh, job boards, I won't name any that put stars or things <laughs> next to, uh, you know, certain applicants based on the limited criteria you put in and, uh, behavioral assessment companies that get too clever for their own good with evaluating, you know, fit and things. And I, I love job boards and I, I am a big believer in behavioral assessments Ta- or even my industry of background screening companies that put try to put some sort of create a social media score or other kinds of scores around. And I'm like, no, that's not what we want to be doing. And so I will definitely work with a client to help them build on any of these things. A, a reasonable system that really hopefully mitigates a lot of bias. But when, you know, when it comes down to it, like you said, this is the employers, this is the noose they're putting around their neck if they're not careful. So what, you know, you mentioned the EOC and I, I wouldn't be surprised if EOC starts trying to come after uh, some tech companies too, but how do you mitigate or how, how does bias, let's start there. How does bias get into the the AI process to start with? Because these systems are definitely, they don't, you know, they don't care, right? I mean, they're, you know, they yeah. don't, it's a, but it's disparate impact, right? So how, how does it, how's that disparate impact getting in there? So the, the bias gets in in a bunch of different ways. One is who is creating the algorithm. And so if you've got a team of white dudes, no offense, white dudes, but if you have a team of white dudes, they might not always pick up on the, minutia of other people's experiences when they're putting into the algorithm. The next is the data the algorithm gets fed. And this is where particularly for the DEIB folks, where you're using historic performance data, and then you look at the organization to try to find out who the next great hire is. Well, if you historically only have, again, white dudes, no offense to white dudes, if you only have white dudes working for you, the prediction is likely to replicate for who the next hire is going to be along those same demographic lines. And so it's the people doing it, it's the what it's being fed, and then how we're controlling it. So a lot of these, not overly many at this point, I think a lot of them are still being able to control the algorithm. But when we add machine learning into it and we just set the AI loose and it goes and creates its own you know, new things to make pick the best new candidate, it's going to get out of our control and out of our ability to turn parts of it off. And then we might see very biased results, but only after we've done a few hires to look back and see if we've made those biased results. So there's a lot of different ways that the bias can get in. And we're starting to see states and agencies taking a lot of initiative to try to figure out, are these tools causing these problems? And when you say... It's going to select, you know, let's say over 40 white guys for a job consistently. 
even though those age and uh, you know the amount of melanin in the skin isn't being fed into the AI, what you, that it still picks up that bias because of the schools this person's attended, what their work history may have looked like, and I think we've we. I'm arguing with managers all, you know, or my, my lovely clients all the time who, who, who think, oh yeah, we recruit these engineers from this school and they always work out. And that may be the case, but that's, that doesn't mean you're, you're, you're going to get a great diversity of education, even regardless of community backgrounds and things like that. Right. The, the trick like I got into a fight with an AI lady in 2016 because I was like, you know, this bias stuff in AI, it really could cause a disparate impact and going through it. She's like, but I don't collect protected class information. So how could that possibly feed into my algorithm and then ha- result in discrimination? I'm like, well, see, if you don't have the information, you don't know that you're creating this impact. You have no way to measure it. So you need that information in the algorithm so you can turn it off or mitigate for it. And so without that information, we can assume that there's some discrimination. And there's been some historical examples of that, yep, we've got some discrimination already without having the protected class information in there. And so it takes a very knowledgeable, deliberate organization to create a tool that is actively trying to avoid discrimination and disparate impact. The folks who are still in the wild, wild west trying to get that product out the door as fast as possible, whether they're in an agile system or whatever they're trying to do, they may not be spending that deliberate time. So for HR teams, there's a big difference between being bleeding edge here and being cutting edge. And I fear too many are moving to that bleeding edge too fast so that they can't control what the potential discrimination could be. And- how would you suggest an organization that, that wants to implement some AI, let's say a selection tool, uh, although I would prefer you start with something with internal employees first and, and you know, like identifying key performers for, you know, performance ladders or something like that and test it that way. But let's say selection. How would you, how would you check for bias as, as you're going through implementing an AI system on, around uh, selection? Well, first I would ask what they do to mitigate bias. What do they do? How do they feed it? How do they correct for it? What kind of internal audits have they done for a long time? Like yeah, this, for their own processes, for their manual processes or existing processes, right? Exactly. And this is in part what New York City is requiring tools to use as of July 5th is when they're going to use start doing enforcement on this. The date has changed a couple of times, so don't hold me to that date. But I think it probably will be July 5th that they're going to start asking for those audits. So if you're a customer and you're looking at this tool, do they have these audits already in place? What what systems are they using to try to mitigate things before I let them play with my data? And I, you know, I've got a, a webinar and present conference presentation on mitigating bias in the employee selection process. And just going through that, you can see light bulbs going off. People <laughs> saying, "Oh crap! I think we're we may be doing that because it's not something a lot of folks have have thought about." Um, you know, our our recruitment process seems to be working for us, and so let's stick with it. And then you start thinking about what's really relevant to the job versus. You know, all these managers have this 
unique insight into the human soul and they have their nice to haves. And those sometimes are more important than the actual ability to do the job and they get in the way. And so if, you know, looking at our current process and what its outcomes are and maybe trying to correct that before we replicate that into technology is, is a good start. Well, there's also a bit about algorithms that find correlations that don't necessarily lead to causation, right? Like this doesn't necessarily lead to that. And there's a potential in these systems for them to capture characteristics of an individual, especially if they're using web-based information and social media accounts to figure out to figure out who the best candidate is going to be. But when they find that piece and then they tie it to this particular job, it might have a very high statistical relationship. Like it's very strong indicator, but it doesn't meet the criteria of being a job necessity um, and being related to the actual job. So for example, if I had, if I wore purple socks and that meant that I was a great customer service rep, statistically that showed very strong, but purple socks don't translate to the actual duties of the job. So there's some inherent smell test kind of that makes this feel like I can sell it to grandma on a jury. Like I'm just going to be looking for people with purple socks if that means that this is a good customer service rep. But we have to take the algorithm, what correlations it's drawing, and then say, is that a business necessity sufficient to support why this tool is the best tool I'm using? Does that make sense? I mean, I feel like that is a a real trick to these algorithms to use. And in the real world, what it may show is that... Uh, you know, let's say you've got, a, you know, in one work area, you've got a manager who's got a preference for, you know, for some reason, he keeps hiring young blonde females. And you're going to get more young blonde females out of this process. Uh, if he's figured out how to recruit them subconsciously, let's say he's not really aware of his, his bias there. Uh, but you're going to get more and more of those in that process. If that's what you're targeting, if that's the, the data going in, it's garbage in garbage out. Right. Right. And I, at first I would say bullshit on his unconscious yeah, saying exactly, the, yeah. the blondes. Right. And then two, he's definitely going to have to meet someone like me and yeah. it's going to be unpleasant for him. So I excited for them for that. But yeah, Yes, you have to you have to keep an eye on how the tools are working to avoid that kind of morass. Let's go into New York City's uh, regulation, July fifth. What are they doing to employers? Because they, as much as I get nervous about employers having bias, let's just face it: the New York City Human Rights Commission and the council there they've got some pretty strong biases too. And their, their opinion is that employers are screwing over every employee, every opportunity they get. Uh, and so, uh, but what are they doing to try and, and maybe protect employees in this process? Okay. Well, first of all, I don't share your bias necessarily. Okay, that's fair. Okay. Um, <laughs> because I do appear in front of these agencies regularly and I have found some to be very reasonable. Um, But what they're trying to do is trying to force companies to navel gaze, to look at what the algorithm is doing, show that you've audited it, and shown that your selection procedures, this particular tool, will not result in rampant discrimination. And so by forcing organizations to do the audit, to have the audit on hand for whenever it's asked for, whenever a candidate asks for it, we're in a better position to be able to defend ourselves. It's really just a, have you looked at this? Here's a documentation that I've looked at it. Okay, everything should be fine. 
And I, there's, as in every new piece of legislation, there is going to be some significant growing pains here. But I do think this is a positive first step in that it does cause us to pause and look and see if our tool is working the way it should be working. Yes, it's going to have costs attached to it. Yes, it's kind of a pain in the ass, but it is a sufficient pause before we get to the legislation that's actually going to regulate this particular piece of it. Um, We just don't know how to regulate it yet. The EOC held a big session a couple of months ago, gave guidance at the end of May. We just don't know how to effectively regulate this technology yet. And so any little measure is a step in a a direction to get us to avoid the problems that we all anticipate will exist with this tool. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative. Premium background checks with fast and friendly service. Obviously, I think background checks are important. That's why my HR consulting practice morphed into a background screening company 24 years ago. But I think many employers are using background checks all wrong. All a background check should be is a lie detector test. Did the applicant tell you the truth in the application and interview process? But that means employers need to ask thorough and sometimes uncomfortable or icky questions, not just about the applicant's criminal history, but also, depending on the role, the details of their employment history, education history, driving history, and maybe even their civil litigation history. And then they need to verify it by doing a thorough background investigation. If all your applicants were honest, there wouldn't be a need for imperative. But because they aren't, we're here for you. You can learn more about Imperative at imperativeinfo.com. If you're an HRCI or a SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 100 and enter the keyword 100. That's O-N-E-H-U-N-D-O, all one word. And now back to my conversation with Kate Bischoff. So math is hard for me, but what is the, <laughs> what's the, the New York City, how do they measure? I mean, do they have a four fifths rule or what are they doing to, you know, to what will they accept as, okay, this isn't creating uh, unfair bias. I believe they're going to use UGIS, the Uniform Guidelines of Employee Selection Procedures. Um, I think they're going to use that and they're going to adopt the four fifths as the guidance, but they're going to look for, have you evaluated this under the standards of the four-fifths rule that's in the uniform guidelines? I believe that's how they're going to do it. And I think other states are going to follow, including my liberal state of Minnesota, Minnesota. So, And, you know, my concern there will be Title VII and Griggs and even the Green decision all have with, you know, with regard to disparate impact, uh, a reasonable business necessity. And the courts so far in, in most of those have been re- pretty reasonable. I'm not sure that I have confidence in New York City, Austin, Texas, San Diego, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, places like that agreeing about what qualifies as a reasonable business necessity. Uh, as a as a labor side employer, what's your concern? Uh, 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 attorney, what's your 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 thought there? 
I'm back to the smell test as to whether or not something is reasonable and a business necessity. Like purple socks, not not going to sell to my grandma. Because I always think of my grandma as the juror, right? Because jurors have nothing else to do, essentially, and they're going to devote themselves to this. Or they have something better they want to be doing and they're just fulfilling their duty and oh, their employer's subsidizing this. So they seem okay with it. But I have to explain to a 97-year-old woman that this is how this works and why it's not or is a business necessity. And they're discerning people. They're going to parse that through. If you've ever sat on a jury, you know how the sausage gets made. Sometimes it's not pretty, but they are thoughtful in how they go through that process. So I want to be able to describe why it's a business necessity. Now, this is another big part of the tool problems. If the tool tells you it's going to give you the best customer service rep, how do you know that that service rep job is the same as your service rep job? Exactly. And that you have to be able to parse through and be able to explain as well. A one uniform selection tool won't work for every organization. And so there has to be some customization to defining what that business necessity is. Um, so that's going to be a trick. And it requires a, a pretty big data set. And so a smaller organization that doesn't have that data set built uh, and, and, you know, is, is relying on their technology vendor to deliver that. Uh, you know, you see it with behavioral assessments all the time, right? Uh, give me a, mm -hmm. a, give me a behavioral profile, a disc profile that, you know, matches a, uh, a good customer service person. And my argument's always, well, what you're looking for in a customer service department in an IT firm is completely different than what you're looking at for customer service at Target the day after Christmas. But how do you, how would a, a smaller organization go about creating that data? A big guys, they can go look at performance data and they've got it. They can pull it out of their HRS, hopefully, or their HRS or out of their ass, one or the other. But they're going to, you know, it's going <laughs> to end up you know, in the system, but a smaller organization that doesn't have that data, what would you tell them? I think you can augment some of that data with what the vendor already has um, and kind of pool them together a bit. But, you know, I think Marcus Buckingham, I think he's the one who said that all HR data is bad data. Um, I think that's true. Um, and so you have to be careful about what you commingle and whether or not you have privacy concerns in there as well, because that's going to be an issue, particularly in California at the moment. Um, and that will spread across the country as well. So there's not there's not just the bias pieces. There's the privacy ends of it, too, because, you know, maybe your algorithm finds that anybody with a Social Security number that starts with four seven is going to be the best labor and employment attorney you'll ever talk to. Um, but it that's you can't show the smell test there. Right. So there's also talk about an AI Bill of Rights, <laughs> mm -hmm. which sounds like a horrible idea to me. Um, and anytime we start targeting technology and, and, and using built rights and things, I, I, I think we're making we're focusing on the wrong problems. But uh, what are you, what are your thoughts about about that and what that might mean for the use of AI generally and in, in, in not just selection, but the rest of the employee process also? Well, the White House's blueprint um, for technology, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it is a blueprint. I know it's a blueprint because um, it's not hard technical guidance. It is just what we aspirationally want to do. And it tries to tackle this privacy concern, the discrimination concerns with how it's used for civic employment, educational pieces. And it is 
attempting to get people to understand what the concerns are before we really have any idea how to legislate on it. Um, And I don't think we're going to be ready to fully legislate AI for some time. Um, Representative Ted Liu from California is a software developer. He has put out some great information about why he's afraid of artificial intelligence. But when you look at the Judiciary Committee in the U.S. Senate with, you know, octogenarians on it who don't know how understand how Facebook works. Right. Um, we're we're in a difficult position to get effective legislation out of Congress at this point in time. And I really think it's going to be, even though it's really unfortunate because you want to be able to sell your tools across the country, you're going to really see some state specific regulations coming up, like California, like New York, like like maybe even Minnesota, um, where you're going to have to be able to figure out how to work within those different regulatory frameworks, um, hoping that they all kind of overlap, not only in theory, but in practice. And what will probably happen is you'll have software companies that program their and design their systems to the lowest common denominator, the most restrictive, uh, you know, rules and, uh, uh, maybe miss a lot of innovation yeah. opportunities because of that. Uh, but maybe you'll have other technology companies that are more flexible and, and, and can say, okay, uh, you can do, you know, this, this conforms to New York or even just New York city. Uh, but you can do whatever the hell you want in Texas, as far as, you know, as long as you don't violate the, you know, you know pew pew where I'm at. So, uh, the, so that's, uh, you know, uh, and that's what we've seen in the background screening business. I mean, 90% right. of the screening companies, Legis, you know, build their, their regardless of where you are, you're getting New York restricted for New York and California. That's the standard what they're doing. And then you've got boutique agencies that charge a lot more, like mine, where we look at you know where is this job and what are the ordinances in you know uh, you know Madison, Wisconsin, uh, and and what do we have to do there to 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 what can the employer have and you know we don't want them the rope to hang themselves with, but. Uh, we want to get them as much information. And so, you know, and, and those are going to, you know, so maybe the software companies will follow that model and some of them will, will be more bespoke to, to jurisdictional issues. Well, maybe. Like there's one particular fact that, particularly if you're looking for an employee retention tool, right? Retention might look at something like how absent has this person been? Well, in the territory of Puerto Rico, you cannot use absences to affect a business decision or an employment decision. And so while we can imagine that using absences is going to show people who have used leave, who have sick kids, you know, you get familial status, you get disability discrimination built in. That's why Puerto Rico prohibits this use, but it hasn't been captured yet in California. And so the goal might be to to build your tool to fit the regulations of California, but then you miss this piece and Puerto Rico. And while the risk to the use in Puerto Rico is probably really small, you still have these varying pieces that are going to make it more difficult. There's a different way to do it, which I'm slightly pushing the great state of Minnesota to do, is we already have a statute in our Human Rights Act, which is kind of like our little tiny Title VII, that says no one can aid and abet discrimination. And if you aid and abet discrimination, you can be held liable as well. And that's where I see companies, get, particularly the vendors, getting in trouble first 
is because while they may have helped an organization use this tool and the decision is still the responsibility of this organization, the state can then say, ah, but you aided and abetted it. You helped it. Here's how you helped it. You used information that resulted in discrimination. Your algorithm doesn't work to fight bias. We're going to hold you liable as well. Then it's going to become a contract dispute between the vendor and the employer because the employer probably signed an indemnification clause. It probably had the we'll pay your attorney's fees piece in it. So then it's a contract dispute between them. But at least the vendor is put on notice that, hey, you can't aid in a bet here either. And I think that is going to be an effective tool if states have that statute and two, if they're willing to use it. And they have to have someone knowledgeable enough to be able to go look at it. Um, And I think AI expertise right now is so thin that it might be hard for a bit before that is enacted. I think you're kind of making my point. Uh, You've already got technology or you've already got legislation on the books, right? That why do we need AI technology or I keep saying technology, why do we need AI legislation when we've already got Griggs v. Duke Power. We've already we've already got the 1991, I think, changes uh, that put disparate impact into Title VII. How? Why is why are we giving any special attention just to AI? Isn't it just a response to oh, this is something new and shiny, and it it terrifies us, and it helps us get votes, versus just using the current law and saying, okay, look, here's your EEO one. What the heck's going on here? Well, there's going to be problems with using the new law because it's always going to be tricky to show a particular action. Like if you don't hire me because I am a white woman who is also a divorcee and you pushed, that is how I got spilled out. So and I've got familial dis, dis, status discrimination right. in there, right? When I go say your algorithm discriminated against me, that's disparate treatment because it's against me. I have to show that it discriminated against divorced women first, and that's harder to show. And so someone could kick my case because it's not disparate impact, it's disparate treatment. But then it's hard to find enough divorced women to say, oh, well, yes, this is disparate impact. There's procedural litigation troubles before we get there, where the potential is, is that we could come up with some sort of litigation that would catch those holes before we get to, oh my God, this is the end. And so that's why I think we may need legislation. We can try to use what's currently on the books, and we don't know how courts are going to necessarily respond to that. But there is potentially enough holes that make the current laws ineffective. Okay. So if I'm a well-meaning HR leader, and I want to to try and incorporate some AI into our processes and I've got specific use cases for it. Uh, you know, what are my ethical responsibilities? What ought I be considering as I implement those both in, you know, the interest of the company, but also the interest of applicants and, and the community? I would be trying to find an organization who understands these risks before they got to your door, um, that you're not the one raising these concerns. And so You need to ask about them. You need to see verification of them because no salesperson is going to go, oh, yeah, yeah, we've got that. That's fine. And then you don't get evidence of it. Like you need to actually see the evidence of it. Um, So I would be asking, what is your protocol on this? How do you avoid 
do you are you using adverse systems to try to attack for bias, et cetera? Like you're asking the questions about how are they trying to mitigate this? What steps have they done? And then asking how are they going to help you make sure that the worst of this isn't implemented for us? For example, how do you want me to train hiring managers? Give me your spiel on how to mitigate risk from them or why we're just a tool. Like, how are we having that conversation with users, not just me, the HR person? You know, we've talked about like enterprise kind of AI tools, but everybody with a keyboard now has chat GPT on, you know, <laughs> uh, available to them. Do you have any concerns about ways you've seen HR using chat GPT so far? Not really. I don't think a whole lot of folks are really using ChatGPT at this point. I think it's a newfangled toy that they're playing with. But I think they're also aware of the risks associated with it. Like, for example, the attorney who tried to file a brief in it and had bullshit cases all up yeah. and over that brief, right? Like, yeah, that attorney is going to be sanctioned by the court and it's going to have some licensure issues attached to it too. But I think we know those risks, we can identify those, and then we can smell it out, right? Like, so if somebody gives us a chat GPT generated cover letter and then we ask them, I'm like, okay, so what makes you choose XYZ company? Why do you want to come work with us? And their response does not match the chat GPT response. Well, then we smelled out, ah, there's a rat here, right? Like, so we can figure out what to do next. I think it's going to be difficult to continue to evaluate folks given chat GPT's life at this point in time. But I don't think it is the end all be all that oh, we should all just be using ChatGPT or we should all just be moving to this. I think there's plenty of folks who are still rational and understanding the role of humans in these decisions. Well, and and I think we can agree that cover letters are bullshit anyway uh, because <laughs> yes. cover letters and, and, and resumes are nothing more than polite lies and the applicant's <laughs> telling you what they want to tell you. And, uh, and whenever I hear a manager say, well, it tells me how well they can write or it tells me how creative they are when their resume. No, it tells you they had 50 bucks mm-hmm. to pay somebody to do it for them or they, they knew how to, you know, so, uh, and, and you talk, want to talk about bias. Let's, let, you know, there's, there's, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, you know, maybe I really don't care that this machinist, you know, has a beautiful resume or can write a nice cover letter for their application. So, but one thing I have s- seen in discussions uh, around this is people trying to write progressive discipline uh, notes out of chat, you know, feeding details into chat G- GPT, and sometimes perhaps including company information and what they're feeding into somebody else's, you know, intelligence mm-hmm. system, uh, you know, and data system. And I think, you know, you're just training the AI on your organization at that point. And maybe that particular, you know, God, don't put that applicant's name or that, that employee's name and in, in what you're feeding <laughs> it. But, but it's possible that, you know, it, it's, they're there to, you know, to collect the data. I mean, they're scooping, you know, they're vacuuming up data all over the place. And uh, if you don't think the information you're feeding in there is, is, going into the back end and, and being used or misused, I think, you know, I think you're really naive and, mm-hmm. and probably exposing your, your organization to some risk. And I just don't think a lot of people think about what happens to the data after it's out of their hands when they hit submit. I agree with you. I think there's definitely some risk attached there. I mean, 
my 18-year-old has used it to write a poem and was smart enough to go, ooh, I should change some words <laughs> to make this actually mine. So, I mean, I think there is definitely some risk associated with it. I don't think, while I know there's some great statistics out there that, you know, like seven out of 10 are already using it. I'm like, I don't think so. I don't think that many people are using it, but I do think People are curious about it and they kind of enjoy it. But once they turn ChatGPT on to create a handbook, the yeah. handbook is going to be 120 pages long. And you know what? You're going to come crawling back to me anyway. So, like, <laughs> it, it's fine. Try it. But I don't think we're going to get there anytime soon. Yeah, I, uh, as an experiment, asked it to write a handbook for a, a, an employer in Texas with less than 50 employees and, and boom, boom, boom. And give me an outline and then fill it out. and um, it said, uh, included a section on workers comp and said that you had to subscribe yep. to workers comp. And I'm like, okay, are you sure about this? And I had to go back and forth with it a couple of times. And it finally said, oh, you're right. Texas doesn't require workers comp. It's the one state that doesn't. <laughs> and I'm like, well, no shit. I know that. But, uh, you know, how many HR people are writing their, their handbooks and just throwing stuff in there? Nobody reads their handbook yeah. and they're hoping the employees don't. But, um, you know, it's, you know, those are the kind of things. So you've, and cause it does, uh, they call it hallucinating and, uh, it's not the fun <laughs> kind of hallucinating. It's not ketamine or, or something like that. It's, it's, and so, but, um, you know, it just double check, you know, it, it, it could give you a pretty good outline and, but somebody who knows what they're doing needs to fill in the, the blanks there. Yeah, I think right now we have so much human judgment and that's what we value. We want everybody to be treated with respect. And if we didn't need people to be treated with respect, we can replace it all with chat GPT and other robots. So human judgment is still going to be critical, at least for a little while yet. Maybe I can pay off my mortgage before it ends. No, yeah, I think you're safe. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, that's all the time we have. But thank you for joining me today to talk about this, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening. As I said, this is episode 100. I want to thank our producer, Rob Upchurch, for all his behind-the-scenes support over the last couple of years. And you can reach him at robmakespods.com. I also want to thank Imperative's marketing coordinator, Marianne Hernandez, who will definitely not be replaced by AI anytime soon. You can comment on this episode or search our previous 99 episodes at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And I'm Mike Coffey. I'll see you next week for episode 101. And until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.